Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope everybody has had a fantastic week. It is good to be back. We had a great holiday, and then afterwards I came back unbelievably sick, and uh, was, I had a fever for almost seven days in a row, and the doctor says that nothing was wrong with me. I'm like, well, glad medical school did you a good job, but yeah. Um, so last Sunday we had Pastor Allen speak, um, and thank you for covering for me, Dad. I really appreciate that. Um, but today we are back at it, and can anybody guess what book of the Bible we are in today? Good man, you guys are prophetic. I am just so happy. We are, we're going to be in Acts 12. Candace asked me yesterday, we had a game night. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, Candace asked me last night, she's like, so how much longer? And uh, somewhere in 24, I promise you, we'll be almost done. Um, but no, we, we are going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. Um, for those of you guys who are joining with us for the first time or haven't been with us for a while, um, we systematically go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, building upon each other. Uh, I do not like to cherry pick random topics to make the Bible fit my narrative. Uh, I believe that the Bible is its own voice and uh, it is not its responsibility to accustom to my life. I change my life according to the word of God. Amen. Need to clarify that in today's society because that's unfortunately not something that we're seeing a lot of. So let's back up to Luke, so to Acts chapter 11 for just a quick second. In verses 22 through 30, just to give you guys a recap, we're, we're looking at what was taking place at the church of Antioch, and it says this And the news of those things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that that with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was a whole year that they assembled together with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, the The prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Holy Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout the world, which also happened in the days of Caesar. Then the disciples, each of them according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They did, they, this they all did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I I wanted to recap that because it seems like everything in this church is going the right way. The, the God is moving. The church is growing. People are pouring out with charity. And on top of all of that, the greatest miracle of it all, they are in unity. And if you've ever been in church long enough to see a church unified, that in itself is an act of God. And so what you're seeing here is that everything is going, you have the prophetic word, the the prophets are coming into town to to declare what's happening and what will be happening. You've got like 
the best of the best ministers with Barnabas and Saul, like they're killing it. But then we're going to go into verse chapter 12, and it's kind of like a tale of two cities. It's the best of times, it's the worst of times. Because I find it unique that while everything that is going on in Antioch, all the blessings, all the prophetic, all the move of God, all the growth, all the unity, all the passion, simultaneously all hell is breaking loose against the Jerusalem church. Have you ever experienced that where your best friend, your co-worker, your enemy, your frenemy is seemingly hitting home runs by accident and you're on the other side doing everything the right way and hell has come up against you? Is that, am I the only person that's happened to? And meanwhile, you have to celebrate their victories while you're barely, barely treading water. Come on. You know, it's funny. We sang these songs today and EJ, you killed it. The worship, unbelievable. You did, it, was, it was fantastic. It, but every song, I don't know if you were seeing this repetitive theme that was going on, but it's, he's going to get me out of Egypt. He's not just going to get me out. We're going to have victory. We saw gratitude. I've got not much to give. It's all about Jesus. We're, we're walking this thing through because, can I tell you that there are two times in life, there are the peaks and there are the valleys. And you know what's crazy? A lot of times it's self-inflicted, but then there are these moments in our lives that when I look into the mirror, I can't point out a flaw that caused the situation. And in fact, the exact opposite, the closer I seem to have gotten closer to Christ, the more craziness things have happened. Has that ever happened to anybody? You've been fasting and you've been praying and you're doing the right thing. Two months ago, you're living wild. Now all of a sudden you're doing right. Two months ago, you had no problems or your bills are paid. Now you're getting bills out of nowhere and you don't know what's going on can I tell you something that there are seasons in life that you get closer to God and hell seems to be at your back door but then there's seasons of life where heaven is right there so we're talking about two churches that are both seeking God one is thriving one is getting punished one is growing in the things of God. The other one is having an all-out assault. We're not talking about two churches on two continents. We're not talking about two churches in two different countries. We're not talking about two churches governed by two different leaders. We're talking about two churches within a couple of days walk from each other that are having exact opposite moves of God. And at the end of it all today, here's what I want you to hear me out. You cannot get weary in well-doing. You cannot quit because it seems like everything is going up against you. Nor can you celebrate the victories of life as if you did something. Heavenly God, I just thank you that as we dive into Acts chapter 12 and we've set this whole thing up that now we have an opportunity for you to come in like an incredible surgeon and with your scalpel to, to, to carve us up a little bit. God, trim out the areas of us that have bad uh, thought processes and um, misconceptions of your word. Edify us, build us up, God. Lord, I just thank you that those who have been going through it in life will feel refreshed and restored. 
And I thank you that as we prepare for this next season of life, God, where, where choices are going to be made and decisions have to be made, that, that, God, we can have faith in you and in your process. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, chapter 12. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass the church. This is uh, King Herod of Agrippa I. He is the grandson of an incredible man named King Herod who wiped out everybody to and under and tried to kill Jesus. That's his grandpa. His uncle, if you will, uh, is the same uncle who had the trial of Jesus. So he's got a good heritage. His grandfather tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. His uncle tried to kill him at 33. And now here he is picking up where they've left off to harass the church. And it says that he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. No doubt, this isn't because uh, Herod had an issue with the church. Herod is a political figure. Herod's problem was the people that had his ear didn't like the church. And it was funny to see that back then that the, the, the role of the political environment at that time was to all and out attack the church. They're going to sanction them. They're going to isolate them. They're going to persecute them. The government and doing its best leader by leader is trying its absolute best to squash this movie, movement. Remember, the religious leaders didn't like their oppressors. They didn't like the Roman governors. They didn't like the idea of having these uh, uh, people that are occupying their land. That's another buzzword for today. But you know what was worse? They didn't want to go to those leaders, so they created their own situation, and they would send their own people to harass the church, their own people to go and attack them, a man by the name of Saul. And Saul did it very, very well for a season, and then Saul got knocked on his behind by Jesus, and Saul becomes eventually Paul and gets converted, and now all of a sudden their plan isn't working, so now the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and now we're going to go back to our oppressors and say, hey, I don't like those people, but you're fantastic. Can I tell you in a lot of ways in life, people will come to you and will speak sweet things to you when last week they were trying to harass you? Why? Because people who are worldly people are always trying to manipulate and to trick you into doing what they want. And what we're seeing here is the religious leaders of the day are now pivoting away from the Christians on their one-on-one -on -one attack and now trying to get the Roman government to do the work for them. But here's the problem. If you've ever read any of the history of that time, my God, all the way to today, there's always turmoil in that area of the world. Always. So when, the, when Rome would come through, there was a bunch of different types of revolt, revolts and, and revolutions that attempted. Some worked for a little bit. Every one of them eventually got squashed and wiped out. But the problem was, if the leader could not control a rebellion, he wasn't fit to be a leader, and he would get fired. Sometimes fired by removing his head from his shoulders, 
sometimes fired, literally in fire. Uh, they've been known to fillet them alive. They, they, they didn't do well with people not being able to control. Right before Jesus, there was a small uprising. And somebody got fired. So now, the religious leaders are showing up going, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, there might be a little uprising without taxes being paid. In other words, if you don't do what we tell you to do, you're going to die. So he goes, he begins to persecute, he begins to do his things, and it says this in verse 2, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This was a new development in the church. James wasn't the first person to be martyred. We know that was Stephen, but James is the first disciple or apostle to be martyred. He's one of the 12 that followed Jesus. One of the first ones to follow Jesus, actually. He is James of Zebedee, known as the Son of Thunder. He's the same big three, James, Peter, and John, that were with Jesus. He's the same guy that was always around Jesus. The same one that Jesus showed immediate affection to and loved. And can we pause for a minute and just look at this? Because I find it interesting, <coughs> of all the 12 to pass, it's going to be James. I, I see this as a hard thing for us to swallow because you would think, James being close to Jesus should exempt James from any kind of problems. But that's not the case. I feel like we've bought into this narrative, especially here in the West, if we can, that if I follow Jesus, that if I serve Jesus, that if I do the right things with Jesus, that if I go to church, that if I fast and that if I pray, that if I do all of those jumping check marks, then nothing could ever happen to me. Can I tell you, I believed that for a very, very long time. In fact, if I want to back up um, a couple decades, almost a couple decades, uh, I was serving at a church. I was ministering at a church. My ministry was expanding. All the right things was going on. Can I tell you, on one weekend, I got busy and I forgot to tithe. That following Monday, my wife had a miscarriage. And I convinced myself that because I missed that Sunday, God allowed the devil to take my child. And so then there goes this huge shame wheel that's going on. Can I tell you? Just hold on for a second. Good news and bad news. It, the, the, the issues of life will rain on the just and it will rain on the unjust. The differences are, because this is the question, Pete, if bad things can happen to me for following Jesus, then what's the point? What's the point? Are we only serving Jesus because he's our sugar daddy? Are we only serving Jesus to get something from him? Like, are we serving to get his hands or are we serving to chase his heart? Am I only serving God with these, with these preconditions and these these trumped up ideas of a contract. Can I tell you when, when you gave your heart to Jesus and, and you, you became part of the bride of Christ, can I tell you, you didn't sign a prenuptial. There was no prenup. 
There was no clause that, God, I will serve you as long as I am healthy. God, I will serve you as long as my kids are okay. God, I will serve you as long as I've got a job. God, I will serve you as long as everything is okay. God, I will serve you as long as my house doesn't burn down. God, I will serve you as long as I don't get embarrassed publicly. God, I will serve you as long as X, Y, and Z. Put in your fear. Put in your concern. And Jesus goes, oh, man, absolutely. I'll sign that document. No. In fact, the exact opposite takes place in our lives. This is not a fun hoop-hopping or hooraying message, but it's the real truth. It's the real truth because Jesus says that if you follow me, the world will hate you. He told his apostles, there will be tribulation. Not in just revelation. There will be tribulation now. And we look at all of this, and, and we will have tribulation, and the world will hate you for my sake. He, he didn't try to hide it. Jesus was very forthcoming. If you serve me, your family may disown you. If you serve me, everything around you may try to fall apart. I don't know where we have begun to believe this idea of by saying yes to Jesus is a yes to comfort. And maybe it's because your best life now will sell more books than your persecuted believer. Everybody wants their best life. Everybody wants 10 ways to become more, 10 times prosperous. Can I tell you, in the word of God, there is a lot about prosperity. In the word of God, there's a lot about health. In the word of God, there is a lot about peace, joy, and love. But equally, there's a lot about going through it. Can I tell you the Holy Spirit's name is the great comforter? You should need the comforter if you don't need comfort for something. There are moments in our lives where you are on top of a mountain and there are moments in your life where you feel like the mountain is on top of you. And we serve Jesus no matter what. Up to Acts chapter 12, the church had been on the streak of success. Experiencing one exciting conversion after another from Saul to Cornelius to the prophetic words breaking out to the miracles taking place. Sure, there might have been some side tribulations and problems, but by and large, it's been pretty smooth sailing except for Stephen, and that even was a great thing for everybody. Then all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 12, Satan has reared his head not to attack the fringe, but to go after James himself. Stephen was martyred in chapter 7, but the death of James shatters this entire illusion that the 12 would expect divine protection for the rest of their life. Jesus promises nothing like that in his word. In Mark 10, he tells us, Do you not know what you ask? Can you drink of the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism, baptism that I'm baptized with? James and John, not really knowing what they're saying, goes, yeah, I can do that. And Jesus laughs and goes, indeed, you will. You will drink like I've drank. This martyrdom was a fulfillment of a promise. Think about that. 
How would you serve Jesus today if you saw an angel of God and he goes, by the way, doing a great job. In five years, you're going to die for me. Does that make you excited? Does that make you scared? Do you go, I don't know, five years? How about this? It was, I think it was 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus that we see James dead. We're looking at this whole picture going, this is a good span of prosperity and everything is great. Now all of a sudden he's seemingly allowing the enemy to do whatever the enemy wants to do. He attacked him with the sword, and, and historically, uh, Eusebius writes from Clement of Alexandria, he says, the soldier guarding James, before James was executed, was so moved by James's account of Jesus that he himself fell to his knees, became a Christian, and willingly followed James to death that same day. Think about that. You're witnessing to somebody about following Jesus, and if you say yes today, you will die tomorrow. That boy must have could have preached something. I mean, I, listen, I love T.D. Jakes, but I ain't dying for him tomorrow. I'm going to tell you that straight up. James shackled. In other words, I'm not concerned. Think about this for a second. He's sitting there going, I'm going to die tomorrow. Not woe is me. Not I can't believe this is happening to me. Not Jesus, I thought you said. What's going on, God? I've done the right thing. He looks to the person and goes, this may be it for me, so I will take the last moment to ensure somebody else is going to heaven. James has this idea, and it's a crazy idea. That my life is not about me. Because even in his final moments where you and I would probably be sulking in the corner crying, peeing our pants and throwing it up, James is going, hey, have you met Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Were you here a couple years ago? Let me tell you what this whole thing's about. And this man watched somebody doomed to die that was so passionate about what he was believing that he goes, I'll follow you to death because I believe you believe it. I was trained in seminary when we were doing a big uh, evangelism class. And one of the tools that we would use was to go to somebody and kind of figure out what their problems were in life and talk about how Jesus can fix their problems. Can I tell you the only problem Jesus promises to fix today is your eternal salvation. Your responsibility is not to be a salesman for the cross. Your responsibility is not to stand up and go, as a used car salesman, that you're trying to, to one-up and one-sell and make everything beautiful and everything shiny and all of those things. In fact, it's the exact opposite of how Jesus did it. Jesus looks and says, there will be tribulations and there will be trials and the people will not like you and they will talk about you and they will chastise you and they will hate you. However, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. 
But what we've understood this to mean is he's overcome the world, meaning now we don't have to worry about consequences of the world. No. He's overcome the world to this idea of this. There is so much more to life than my two arms and two legs and the breath in my lungs. There is so much more to life than my comfort and my health. There is so much more to life than my friends and my finances. There is so much more to life than having a big house and a nice car. Because life is meant to be lived conversion to conversion, not comfort to comfort. In verse 3 it says, And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. That first part of that verse, so when he saw that it pleased the Jews, it points back to this idea that this was nothing more than a political move. It pleased the people, so he did it. In other words, what was popular is more important than what's, than what's important. He was willing to attack the innocence to further his popularity. He was willing to go to war if it meant that he got more proverbial votes. It was, he could use his political power now to get a message out that these people were bad people. These Christians, these followers of Jesus were rebels. He could use his political pulpit, if you will, to, to bully the narrative that these people are evil and they're bad and they should be exterminated. And today I'm wondering if anything has changed. I'm not saying that all political figures do this and, and I'm not even saying it's the majority all the time. But if I can for a second, it's interesting how we see a politician pivot their roles and their views based on who's interviewing them and when. And just so that I can make everybody mad. That's what I do. President Bush, President Clinton, President Obama, President Trump, and President Biden all have had flip-flop views on abortion gay marriage, and immigration. All of them. All of them. So if I put my faith in that this person I'm about to vote for in a few months is going to be my all in all, there's a solid possibility that they will agree with you tomorrow and get your vote and do what they want to do with the money is the next day. All of them. All of them. I'm still voting. I still have somebody I'll vote for. The difference is, my faith isn't in my vote. It's in my Jesus. But here's the funniest thing that they're doing. We are now living in a world that is so divisive that my vote means that I can't be friends with you.
It has gotten to this place now that you're either for me and against them or you're against me and for them. And I'm going, what has happened? It's a political vote. I'm looking at somebody who has a letter next to their name, and I'm going based on what I can read about them. But can I tell you, for unity's sake, they're going to change their ideas when it's convenient for them. There's nothing in our society that will hold them responsible for what they say. None of them. Have you watched any of the videos? I never said that, and then all of a sudden the clip comes on where they said exactly that thing. Republican, Democrat, Independent, they're all there. So can we stop for a second and realize that maybe the big idea is to make sure that we are all at odds with each other? The big idea maybe that there is no unity in our churches anymore? Maybe the big idea here isn't who's in office, but who can we get you to hate each other about? Because all of a sudden we have switched this idea from disagreement has to mean dishonor. And that's the most li- biggest lie that I've watched the church believe. Oh, I'm going to go to that church. Oh, that's a Republican church. I'm a Democrat. Well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Republican. That's a Democrat. I, they seem to have great ideas, but I, I, I can't connect with them because they're different. Can I tell you the only time there should be any form of divisiveness in our church is in November when Alabama plays Auburn. Besides that, that one day is the only time you have permission. Outside of that, for those four hours, I don't give a care. Outside of that, yeah, love everyone. And can I tell you from the bottom of my heart, and I know I'm not old, I've got some, some experience, stop being stupid. Pete, how am I being stupid? You're being stupid by thinking they care about you. They don't care. You know who does care about you? This guy on the front row. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time one of these political figures that you got into an argument with showed up at the hospital for you? Would go to your house to help change if you had a, uh, to, to fix the pipes if they were, before they got frozen? How many of these ball players, these coaches, these political figures, these movie stars will, will be with you when you need groceries? When your house roof is leaking? Ain't none of them. They don't even know you exist, but I'm going to go to odds with my neighbor because somebody I've never even met said something that they agree that I disagree with. The spirit of stupid has affected us. And we have to realize that it is more important that we maintain unity here at all costs versus who gets elected and who doesn't. Daniel tells us that the Lord sets up and the Lord sets down. So you ready for this? A few years ago, the Lord put Trump in office. And a few years later, the Lord sat him down. You may not like it. That's the reality. The word is true or it's not. So here's the big picture here. Political figures from the beginning of the Bible all the way through do what serves their best interest. And they will lie 
and they will make false promises, and they will be divisive if it means that they get more votes and they get more power. However, Acts chapter 11 shows something different because the church there and those leaders were realizing that there was going to be a problem in another part of the city, in Judea. And they had a prophetic word. And they go, hey, can we gather our resources to go help them? Notice the church should be going out to help the people, not attack the people. Because it shouldn't matter what the government is going on. Yes, pay attention. Yes, vote. Yes, do all your civil duties, civic duties. But the reality is my faith relies in Jesus and my unity relies on his church. I have determined within myself that my relationship with Christine is more important than whoever she decides to talk about on Instagram or Facebook on, on, on political parties. That my relationship with Connie is more important whether or not she reposts a BLM thing or not. That my relationship with Shonda is more important whether or not she's pro-Israel, pro-Palestine. That my relationship with Matt determines a lot greater whether or not he's an Alabama or an Auburn fan. My relationships with the people that I can look at today should matter more than the opinions of strangers on the internet. But we've believed this lie. We've, we've believed this lie that our people that we are politically attracted to is more important than the unity of the church. We have to put our faith in Jesus. I don't blame these guys and ladies. We do the same thing. We amen at church about gossip, but the moment it's convenient at the office, we talk about somebody else. We say yes to the lost being saved, but yet we know it's not popular to talk about it, so we don't. We flip-flop, just like the politicians. I did a poll the other day on my, on my socials asking the simple question, what is church? And then I would post a definition of a, from a book that I'm reading what they said, and what do you think about this? Okay, what is church? Do you agree with this? If yes or no, comment. The vast majority of people gave me their opinion before they even read the definition. And here's some of the ideas of what church is. Church is this. A gathering of people on Sunday to listen to music. It is Christians who have a bless me hour. It is me at home in my devotions. It is a place where everyone goes to get hurt. It is a place where people can get refreshed. It is for the believers, and it's up to God to bring in the non-believers if he decides to convert them. We are the church. Jesus died for us all. All people are saved. It is a religious country club. Oh, no, no. That's not how the world sees it. Most of my friends are believers. 
These are from people that go to a church. Almost all of them. In fact, we are the church because Jesus died for us was actually sent from somebody, a friend of mine that's LGBTQ. The rest, church people. Can I, can I help us for a second? And that is this. What we are in today is called the gathering of believers. The gathering of believers is not the church. The church is people who are baptized and saved under the blood of Jesus, who have dedicated their entire life to Jesus to be his bride. That is the church. And because I am part of the church, I have a gathering. Because I am part of a church, I go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because I am part of the church, I read the word. Because I am part of the church, I pray. But what we've done is that we have made the branches be the main thing. The gathering of the believers on Sundays. You've got two ideas, if I can, real quick. It is for the non-believer. In other words, we're going to gear all of our messages on Sundays for salvation. Bring your friends in. Pastor will lead them to the Lord. Or it's for the believer. And in that context, we are going to be preaching the messages of like we're doing today, to geared believers, and then you would then take it into the lost. How I read Ephesians chapter 4, may not be your passage, it's whatever, that God gives us apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists for perfecting of the saints and equipping for the work of the ministry. In other words, my role on a Sunday is to stir you up to go out and carry it into the world. Okay? That's how new life is operated. That's how we are going to operate. Let me put that to rest. If you go, well, is no one getting saved? People get saved through the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, but I'm not gearing my messages to people who've never heard Jesus. I'm gearing my messages to the believers so you go out and speak the word of God. But the reality is, is that we have these wishy-washy thoughts of what church is. We used to call them double-minded men. Now we call them flip-floppers. And just like a politician, here we go, a double-minded man has two desires that do not agree with each other, and they are unstable in all of his ways. James chapter 1. Matthew 5 says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Joshua says, choose this day who you will serve. And Revelation 3 tells us that I know your deeds and that you're neither hot nor cold, but since you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. We live in a time today where everything is recorded and played back like it's never been in the history of humanity, and yet I'm also watching the flip-floppedness of church members unbelievably happen. We will amen on a Sunday and, and, and be cussing on a Monday. We will, we will go out and talk about, yes, we need to go reach the lost, but then at the same time, I, you don't ever want to go and reach the lost. We will, we, will, we will talk about the importance of being in unity, yet you'll come once every two months to church, and, and you're sitting there going, what have we become? The flip-flop Christians are no better than Herod. Because in word alone do we follow his word. Indeed, depending on the people around us, we have changed. So seeing his increased popularity, he 
when he killed James, he decides to go after Peter. There's a significant difference between how Saul persecuted and how Herod did it. Herod did it. Uh, Saul was wrong. He was, but he thought he was doing the right thing. Saul thought that he was doing the work of God by attacking these believers. Herod, on the other hand, was willingly attacking these people because it was popular. He'd be a mean girl. Notice, like, he intended to bring him before the people after Passover. Why? Because it was a best political time when the people would be gathered. Fearing an unpredictable mob reaction when the Passover pilgrims would flood in, he could sit there and say, I'm going to delay this until it's all over with, and then I can look like a spiritual person. He delivers him to four squads of soldiers. Why? Because Peter's already escaped once. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to him, to God for him, by the church. A church that prays for more than just their meals is a powerful entity. Prayer is a weapon. This is not just something, Lord bless my food in Jesus' name, amen, let's eat, as we're carrying a, a chip from the Mexican restaurant to our mouth. Prayer is more than that. Prayer will shake the heavens and the earth. And you're about to read what prayer did. Four squads of soldiers guarding Peter, who is a high-profile political prisoner who is deemed to be executed and make Herod look good. So he's not in the Ritz-Carlton. He is in the most worst part possible so that he cannot escape. Peter was kept in prison and constant prayers were offered to God for him. (laughs) In verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two shoulders, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side. In other words, he kicked him and said, get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, gird yourself up and tie on your sandals. So he did. And he said to him, put on your garments and follow me. And they went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed through the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gates, which leads to the city. And it opened according to its own accord. And they went out and went to the streets, and immediately the angel departed. And when Peter had come to his senses, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent an angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. For time's sake, we're going to blow through this real quick. We'll keep going, verse 12. So when Peter came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. There were many gathered together praying. As Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhonda came and answered, and she recognized Peter's voice. But because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was at the gate. (laughs) But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, oh, it's his angel. So Peter continues to knock. 
And when they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. But motioning them to, with his hands to be quiet, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, Go and tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And as soon as it was day, there was no small stirring among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. And when Peter searched, Herod searched for him and found him not, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came with him with one accord, having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, and asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. And that Peter kept shouting, this is the voice of a God and not of man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him dead because he did not give glory to God and was eaten by worms from the inside out. But the word of God grew and multiplied and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they took with them also John, whose surname is Mark. There's a tale of two churches. The story of Jerusalem is a lot different than the story of Antioch. The story of Jerusalem is persecution, 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 persecution. Antioch seems to have prosperity, prosperity, prosperity for this season. There's a story of James who is serving God until the hour of his death while Peter gets set free and has an angelic visitation. We don't get to pick our story. I need you to understand that. We don't pick our story. We may be the church that explodes to 10,000 like they did in the old days. And we may be a church full of faithful believers. We may not have visitations from the, an, the angelic world or we may see angels floating around on a regular basis. The point for me is I don't get to pick my story but I always get to pick my reaction to my circumstances. James, in his final hours, is doing his best to convert someone instead of sulking in the corner. Peter, condemned to death, is doing what? Fast asleep. He's got peace too. There's no anxiety. It is what it is. Can you imagine for a moment the emotional trauma, knowing that you're about to die, and then all of a sudden, I'm going to live. Like we go, that's a cool story. I, he's still a human. But he settles within himself early on. Do you know when he settles with himself? After his betrayal of Jesus. He had settled with himself that I've messed up once, it won't happen again. Look at that tenacity, that he can't pick his story, but he can certainly pick his response to all of his circumstances. The church of Antioch, it was a season of blessings. So their response, we're going to give, 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 give. Why? Because it's raining right now. The church in Jerusalem is raining terror. But their response, we're going to pray. We're going to get... Our beloved James just was executed, but we're going to get together and still pray. Think, 
one of the biggest traumatic experiences, their friend getting beheaded. What are we doing? Prayer service. Yo, I've watched people skip church for two weeks because their team lost. I lived in southwest Florida, and we used to pray for bad weather. Why? Because everyone just goes to the beach on the weekends. And then we'd have some rain. Well, we can't come. The roads are wet. But they will drive through a hurricane to go to a movie, game, to a movie or to a game. And, and I'm sitting there laughing, going, our circumstances have determined whether or not we follow the word of God. We have left this idea that I will determine my response and then given up our rights for choice. I will scream and I will yell at a political figure, but I have given up the easy rights of choosing my reactions. I will never determine what a man or a woman of office will do, but I can always determine how Peter responds. I will never understand the weather and how it does what it does, but I will always have the reaction that I can respond to the circumstances around me. In sickness, I will bless the name of the Lord. In health, I will bless the name of the Lord. When I have more money in the bank than I know what to do with, I will bless the name of the Lord. And when I am praying for beans and rice, I will bless the name of the Lord. When my family is serving God, I will bless the name of the Lord. And when my family has betrayed me, I will bless the name of the Lord. When my church grows and expands, I will bless the name of the Lord. And when I stand at a pulpit by myself, I will bless the name of the Lord. Of the Lord. You have to settle within yourself that your circumstances will never determine the words that come out of your mouth. That my circumstances will never have the keys to my heart. Because out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth speaks. And so if I'm always allowing the free access to my circumstances to my heart, it will also control the words that come out of my mouth. I have to stand strong to go, if it's Acts chapter 11 or Acts chapter 12, I will bless the name of the Lord. When my head is about to be removed from my shoulders, I will bless the name of the Lord. And when there is a crown placed on my head because everyone's loving me, I will bless the name of the Lord. My circumstances cannot determine my praise. And here we go, in my final minutes of the day, just to, just to tick some people off. I've been playing now. I'm sorry that I play. Uh, but I wish we had a better piano player. Oh, we, we have been playing now, and we've been worshiping, and I will watch. That's my jam. That's not my jam. That's my song. Yeah, I'm good. When a worship song determines my praise, how shallow am I? Because if I can't worship God with my entire heart, with songs that are meant to worship God, how am I going to worship God when somebody cuts me off on the highway, when my boss is being a turd, when my coworkers are running their mouths against me, when the economy is crashing? If I can't praise God here in this environment, where will you praise? 
But we're living life based on my comfort. It's too cold, I'm not going to worship. It's too hot, I'm not going to worship. It's too wet outside, I'm not going to worship. I'll just stay here on my couch. I can watch online. Online's wonderful when I'm sick at home or I'm out of town. But forsaking this, there's no way. And ironically enough, we're not broadcasting today. Not by choice. But can I tell you, life happens. Power surges happen. Things get broken. It happens. But today you chose to do the uncomfortable thing. Going into the cold. Wrangling your crazy kids. Getting into an argument with your spouse on the way. And showing up and going, forget it, I'm worshiping. Like, I'm not stupid. I know your lives are crazy. My life is crazy. Candace lives with Matt. She comes by once a week when Matt goes to work and be like, hey, can you just anoint the house again? She walked by, I need an old priest and a young priest. The power of Christ compels thee. Now, it's just, it, it's one of those things where we cannot allow our circumstances to determine my praise. You don't know when it's Acts 11. And you don't know when it's Acts 12. But you will always know how to respond. I can't determine what Herod may or may not do. I can't determine who's going to be in the White House in a few months from now. I can't determine what's going on in the Senate. I can't determine what's going on with Israel and Palestine. I can't determine what Russia or Ukraine is going to do. I can't determine what China is or isn't going to do. But you know what I can determine? What Peter's going to do. I can determine that my mouth is going to praise the Lord. I can determine that I'm going to stay faithfully connected to the church. I can determine that I'm not going to let any issue cause between us to destroy our relationships. I can determine that no matter hell or high water, that I will serve God. I can determine that today. I think the lesson here is this. Stop worrying about the things you have no control over and focus on your praise which you always have control over. Stop worrying about your circumstances that you have no control over and start focusing on my response to his faithfulness. In the good times and the bad, I will bless the Lord. And his praise will continually be on my lips. Let's pray. God, we thank you that... Whether it's 11 or 12, you are still God and still on the throne. Whether it's 11 or 12, God, you are always great. Whether it's 11 or 12, God, that you will always, always, always love your people. God, I thank you that you don't flip-flop, that you are stable even when I do. God, we just thank you today that you are the God that still sees, the God that still hears, and the God that still moves in 2024. God, I thank you that our circumstances do not determine any longer 
how we will praise. And that from Sunday to Sunday, on Mondays in the cars, on Tuesday mornings when we're waking up, on Thursdays when we're driving home from work, we will praise the Lord. Even if for 10 minutes, I will determine within myself that I will praise the Lord. If it's in the office bathroom, in my classrooms, at, the, at, at home, or going for a walk, I will determine to give you praise and glory in between Acts 11 and Acts 12. My circumstances, God, I vow today, will no longer determine my depth of relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.